Uh, there's no question I'm doing the hard work. It's just about maybe doing a little bit smarter work now and right. uh, making sure that I don't don't go over that line. Uh, he was like, people think that pro triathletes and just pro athletes in general are the epitome of health. You know, they're so fit. They look so good. <laughs> but he's like, they don't know that it's you're on the brink of disaster constantly. You know, when you have these moments that are like really difficult and, you know, you struggle and you suffer and whatever, those are the things that cause growth. I mean, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, most people, whether it's subconscious or conscious things, they, they're aware of that. And I think you actually, as much as your knee-jerk reaction might be to kind of push away from those things, ultimately you really want them because you know that the end result, um, once you move beyond it a little bit, is a really positive one where mm-hmm. you grow as a human being, whether that's emotionally or physically or whatever. So you're actually, I think, you're searching for those experiences and you know, that's part of what triathlon is at its core to me is a, is a mechanism for growth. Hey everybody, my name is Greg Kopecki and this is episode 10 of the Minimal Multisport Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. The gentleman you just heard was today's guest, my friend and one of the top professional triathletes in the world, Ben Hoffman. Uh, Ben, he's a great guy, he's very entertaining, Uh, he's a super talented athlete, and also he's been in the news lately having missed his opportunity to race at the Ironman World Championship in Hawaii due to an injury, and we will get into all the details on that in the interview. Um, I also wanted to talk to Ben because he's a very smart, he's a genuine guy, and his overall message actually fits into the show pretty well. Um, he's, He's thoughtful, and he doesn't describe himself as a minimalist, but a lot of his approach to life lines up pretty well with minimalism and wanting to have a balanced and happy life. He's, uh, he's got a bunch of hobbies. He does woodworking, welding, carpentry. Uh, he and his wife, Kelsey, make a point to clear out the clutter from their house several times a year. Um, they've lived actually out of an Airstream trailer before for a period of time. And perhaps most importantly, he doesn't just pursue sponsorships with manufacturers of high-tech sports equipment. He also has both a bacon and a wine sponsor. So I think he's doing something very right. But before we get to the interview, just a quick bit of business. This episode of the Minimal Multisport Podcast is brought to you by TriRoost.com, the other triathlon forum. We've got everything. Open thoughts and donut shots, stupid jokes and laid-back folks, gear advice, oh that sounds nice, bikes against walls, badges for all, pets and vacations, and no notifications. Come take a look. You don't even need an account unless you want to join in on the discussion. TryRoost.com. If you don't fit in anywhere, you probably fit in here. Big thank you to TryRoost. They're doing some cool stuff. Um, I'm actually on their forum. Uh, I I post about the podcast and just some other general tri-related stuff. They're a very fun, loving group. Um, They don't take themselves too seriously. So I think it's a nice little breath of fresh air in the endurance sports space. So go check those guys out, and thanks to them for supporting the show. Also, thank you to everyone who has signed up to support the show on Patreon. If you go to minimalmultisport.com, you'll see a link that says Contribute at the top of the page, which will take you to my Patreon page. And if you pledge $2 or more per month, that's less than one order of hipster avocado toast per month, you'll get all of our bonus content. Uh, If you haven't heard the bonus stuff before, uh, you're really missing out because sometimes that stuff ends up being the most entertaining part of the show. Uh, Sometimes it's stuff that's a little bit offensive or it's something that was out of left field, but uh, I always have a hard time uh, trying to keep the regular show short enough. So we end up with some really fun stuff in the Patreon shows, but again, you have to be paying the $2 or more to get access to that. Also, thank you to those people who have shopped through my Amazon banner on the website. Um, Doing so adds no cost to you and it gives us a small commission to help cover our costs. So at the website, scroll down, you'll see a banner. If you click through there and then do your shopping as you normally would, it'll help us out. All right, that's enough business. Let's get on to my conversation with Ben Hoffman. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here with the esteemed, the great, the 
Iron Man crusher, destroyer of all things triathlon, the wonderful Ben Hoffman. How are you, sir? Wow, man. Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. You know, I feel better now that you built me up right there. <laughs> I try um, to do that. The introduction, so. <laughs> <laughs> A little <laughs> bit of flattery. To, uh, everything, yeah. <laughs> No, it is it is genuine for for sure, hundred percent. I mean, we've we've known each other for quite a while now. I'd consider you a, a friend, and uh, so it's you know it's all genuine and real. You're a a plus triathlete and person in my book. I appreciate it. Yeah, same goes for you. Um, <laughs> you know, I know we haven't seen each other in a while, but I assume you're just the, the same caliber of human if not better than the last time we hung out so but not an a plus triathlete i'm like a c minus so you have to take that part off but the, yeah the, i mean i don't know where to to rank you on on the you know the schedule like that but i would say yeah probably in that you're passing <laughs> grade or uh, yeah. on the verge on Barely. the verge of failing the class <laughs> yeah <laughs> i do okay well i think there's a lot we can get into um you know, you've obviously the the news of right now is you didn't race uh, Kona, the Ironman World Championship this year because of an injury. So we'll talk about that. Um, but I guess you know, I, I'm sure that the vast, vast majority of my listeners know who you are. But for those few just losers who aren't with the times and don't know who you are, <laughs> if you could just give us a quick background on who you are, you know, how you got into triathlon, and just uh, anything else you think we should know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, like you said, virtually everyone out there knows who I am, both in the tri community and beyond. I mean, I'm, you know, a public figure for sure. Of course. But, um, Do you have the uh, little yeah, blue I, check mark by your your social media handles, like you're verified? I, I do. I actually haven't checked the Twitter one in a while. I haven't been using Twitter nearly as much this past uh, year, but on my Instagram, I'm verified, so Very it's good. kind of a big deal. That's um, that's yeah, the uh, so. international sign for being a public figure. So, <laughs> you've, well you've done. You made it. <laughs> No, I mean, uh, you know, I call myself a renaissance man of triathlon. So, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think most of my peers are pretty one-dimensional, um, you know, <laughs> but I like to do some woodworking and uh, some welding. Uh, ceram- you know, I'm a bit of a ceramics artist and speak Spanish. You know, I mm-hmm. drink wine and I and I definitely enjoy good wines. And, yeah, I like to think of myself as being relatively uh, multidimensional. But, no, uh, I'm serious about my racing, um, but I also think, you know, I don't take myself too seriously. That's good. And, you know, I like to keep the emphasis of things on, on fun for sure. But, uh, you're so, like the, uh, yeah, the, it's kind the, of who, sorry, you're like the Doseki guy of triathlon. That's, that's what you are in my yeah, heart. The m- most interesting triathlete in triathlon. <laughs> so now I, uh, I actually, I'm originally from Western Colorado, small town or used to be relatively small town called Grand Junction on the Western slope and grew up there. Uh, first 18 years of my life there, went to school at the University of Montana, um, got started in triathlon at the University of Montana. And uh, yeah, in 2007, I think it was, I got my pro license and moved back to Colorado, Durango, spent a few years there, and then moved to the Front Range where everyone is in Boulder. And now I kind of split my time between Tucson and Boulder. And actually, we spend more time in Tucson now. But uh mm. Yeah, from about 2007 till now, really, you know, my life has been about triathlon. Before that, there were a smattering of other things, and I still, like I said, try to keep the balance here and there, especially in the off season. But that's a little little rundown on who I am. Yeah, well, and also, um, I think it was 2006 Collegiate Nationals. Am I correct that that's the year you won? That is the year I won. Yeah, and I think I, I think you were there, and I kind of yes. took it to you. Obviously, of so, course. Yeah. <laughs> that's our that's our little fun fact here. Is I I want to say that year I was like, I did well for me, which was like eleventh or twelfth, something like that. And I remember uh, you finishing, and I didn't know who you were at the time, and I was like, this who's this dude from Montana? Like, they're not supposed to be known for this stuff. And in my mind, I'm talking all kinds of shit, like. He does. He doesn't know anything, and he's slow. He's nothing. But clear, no, just clearly, you were uh, very talented, you know, back then, and and it, it obviously led to great things. So that's that's the uh, little secret. Our uh, <clears throat> our rivalry began at a young age and uh, continues to this day. No, it doesn't. That's right. Yeah, and I mean to to, to be fair about all this because I know there might be a few other listeners out there. Um, that do know about that race. I wanted to highlight that that was technically a duathlon that year. So, Correct. um, you know, I wasn't truly a, a collegiate triathlon national <laughs> champ, although, 
you know, I like to believe that I would have still had a chance to win that had there been a swim. Um, yeah. but yeah, you know, Reno, Reno in April, probably not the best planning for having a, a swim. Well, I think um, what they were trying to do, you know, as I recall, is they were trying to get more collegiate sports like coverage and triathlon and they tried to combine right, yep. like a bunch of sports into almost like an X games type thing for, and they had like snowboarding and triathlon at the same place in Reno. And clearly snowboarding won because it was way too cold to have a swim. And we were all thinking like, what, what were you guys <laughs> thinking with this? And we all got screwed. And, but looking back, it's, it's funny now, but at the time I remember being really confused. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, CSTV. I remember that. They had that's right. Things going on there. Yeah, but uh, no, good, good memories. I mean, those were the original days, and actually, two, that was 2006. And then that summer um, was the summer of glory, which kind of solidified my trajectory in triathlon. Where um, a friend of mine, Elliot Bassett, who then became my coach uh, later on, um, and I hit the road and lived out of a vehicle all summer. Mm-hmm raced in the Pacific Northwest and tried to scrape together enough money to, you know, justify what we were doing. And I think I made somewhere in the neighborhood of about $3,000, maybe 2800 to $3,000, which at the time I thought was, you know, pretty amazing. I, yeah, I thought, okay, no problem. I mean, if all we're doing is eating pasta and peanut butter <laughs> sandwiches, you know, um, how much money do I really need? Yeah. And filling a tank of gas here and there. So, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the of the career, and like I said, and then uh, 2007, I moved to Durango, and and that was the first year of my my professional career, which my first professional race was actually Wildflower 2007. Got mm. third place there, which was at the time, you know, like I couldn't couldn't believe it. I oh, was that's over the yeah, band. that's um, huge. Yeah, so kind of stormed on the scene there, and then I proceeded to get sixth place just out of the money in virtually every other race that year and pretty much the next year. So, um, it was definitely struggle street for a few years. I lived in Durango, like I said, and worked at a health department there, uh, worked just at the front desk and worked part time just to kind of pay the bills basically. Um, but those were the, the origins of my professional career in the sport. Yeah. Well, I didn't know about your whole like van life thing. Uh, you know, this is minimal multi-sport and we all know that it's the minimalist thing to do to live in a van and be super hipster. So you fit <laughs> right. right in with the show. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they say dads are the original hipsters. And in this case, I think I might've been the original hipster mm-hmm. triathlete. I mean, I was doing the, the RV lifestyle before all these other pros started doing it, but, yeah. um, and actually Kelsey and I, my wife, Kelsey and I had a crack at it again. Um, I guess it was not, yeah, not too long ago. Basically, you know, last summer we got on the road and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I spent some time in an airstream and, you know, it turns out that that wasn't really conducive for me to, to mm-hmm. high level performance. I mean, it was enjoyable on some levels, but, uh, it's probably yeah. not something I'll do again in my career. What is it with guys named Ben and Airstreams? Because uh, episode I believe it was eight, <laughs> Ben Ben Hobbs talked about his Airstream experience. But I, I could see that for a triathlete, you know, you really need routine and schedule is everything. You, you need to have pool access. You need to have access to good riding roads. And I could see that on on the road constantly. That's got to be a tough tough business. On the surface, it seems like a great idea. And then I think, yeah, when you're living it, it's a little bit more challenging. And anyone that I know that kind of made that whole thing work or has made it work continues to, they pretty much just park their RV in one place. So it's almost like having a small house in yeah. one place. And that was a big, big part of the problem for us is that we were moving a lot. And, you know, like you said, you're trying to find you know, new roads to ride, places to run. And in the pools, you don't know the schedules. And you find out that half the time, you know, they're closed for some kind of summer cleaning or whatever. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a big challenge. And for me, I know that my best performances come when I just have a solid block and a place that I feel comfortable and enjoy training. So for us, that's been, you know, Tucson and Boulder and, uh, yeah, we're not messing with that formula too much, probably moving forward. I'm trying to think who's done it. Like the Wartels, I think they've done it, but they were kind of parked in places for a long time, I think. Right. And then like, uh, it's Eric Lagerstrom, right? He's like doing the van thing or he's done it, I think. Is exactly. That, yeah. yeah. Those are the two ones that pop into my mind too. I don't know if there are other people. I know that the, the Katie and, uh, uh the Zephyrus, you know, right. yeah. duo basically had like a tiny house. I think they were even on the show 
Um, but I don't think, I don't think they really use it that much. You know, I think mm. they're kind of on the road so much for her racing that, uh, they're not really back in California to use it all that much, but right. those are the only other people that I can think of. But for anybody out there who's thinking of doing it, you know, maybe, <laughs> uh, yeah, do the, do the math first. Yeah. Well, if you're pursuing an elite yeah. triathlon career, but for, for everyone else, I mean, for most people, it's like, if you don't need that crazy, uh, schedule and in the pool time and, but yeah, for now, I think, like I said, maybe at a later stage in life when the pro triathlon career isn't uh, the focus anymore, but for now, right. yeah, I scratched that itch. So, yep. Well, I guess we should get to the, the news of the moment, which is you unfortunately not racing in Hawaii. You've been injured. Uh, what's the update? The update is I'm sitting on the couch right now, which is basically what I've been doing for the past several weeks and uh, just trying to let my stress fracture heal. I have a grade four, had a grade four sacral stress fracture, which mm-hmm. is actually pretty much identical to the injury that Jan uh, Fernando, you know, experienced as well as mm-hmm. I heard secondhand that Boris Stein also experienced. And so the three of us were out of Kona with the same injury. Um, it, it Strangely enough, it's a, it's not an ultra common injury. It, apparently it is with triathletes, but uh, in the, in the bigger population, the general population, it's not something you see a lot of. We have a hip fracture specialist friend that, that's a doctor in Nashville. And he, you know, he said, look, I've been searching through all these cases to try and try and find more information for you. Like, but you know, if he's like, if it was a femoral head fracture, of course I'd have 30,000 cases to pull from. He's like, but this is just not as common as I'd like, you know, to, to find information on it. So yeah. it's a bit of a random injury. Um, you know, they, they say repetitive stress, which I think is both cycling and running related in this case. And, um, yeah, it's really unfortunate. I mean, I was, you know, it's easy to say this now, but I was entering kind of the shape of my life. I was training the house down. I didn't think I was overreaching really. Mm-hmm. I had no warning signs. And then one day to the next, I did a long ride with a run off the bike and I was just limping. And, mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of the moment where everything went south. So, Unfortunately, we did everything we could to salvage it. We treated it like it was soft tissue at first before we got the MRI. And then even when I realized that it was a, a stress fracture, I, you know, I did the typical uh, type A, uh, you know, lead triathlete mindset where I was like, well, anything I can do, like, I don't care if it's broken, like, I'm still going to try, you know, Kona's Kona and it's not going to, the yeah. day doesn't changing. Maybe we can try to salvage it. And after about four more days of training on it, um, I, I realized that was going to be a bad, bad idea. So yeah, just yeah. shut it down called all the sponsors, let them know what was happening. And then, uh, yeah, just tried to do what we could, went out there anyway to meet with everyone and, and experience the race on the ground, you know, from the sidelines and yeah. just learn as much as I could about it. So it's a bummer. I mean, that, that sacral stuff seems really challenging. I, I remember, um, when I was living in Colorado Springs and I was swimming with the main triathlon group at the Olympic training center and, uh, Hunter Kemper, you know, he was like, yeah, he always had, I believe it was like low back sacral issues, like plaguing him forever. And it just uh-huh. like, wasn't wanting to go away. And it, it's just like stress fractures and stress, sorry, stress fractures in general seem to take a long time or always longer than you want. And that sacrum seems to be specifically like just a pain in the ass. I don't have a point. Yeah, I don't have a point I mean, there. I'm just like, right, right. I'm just sympathizing with you. <laughs> no, no, it's uh it is man. And it, you know, these are, this is kind of new, uh, yeah, new frontier for me where, you know, and not one that I really want to explore again, moving forward. But, uh, this year has just been tough. It's been easily my, on paper, at least kind of my, my worst season where I did something different at the beginning of the year. I raced the Absa Cape Epic, the, the, you know, the mountain bike stage race in Mm -hmm. South Africa with Sebastian Keenley. And, um, I had a bit of a crash there and, Mm -hmm. you know, when it first happened, I didn't think much of it, but then it kind of developed into also an SI joint issue on my left side. This is on my right side now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, kind of held me back from running basically those last few weeks leading into South Africa. So I was sort of rolling the dice there. I was hoping for a good result, but I, I really kind of in the back of my mind, didn't think it was probably going to go all that well. And in the end it didn't, um, Yeah. yeah, I ended up walking the marathon just to take the box for Hawaii and, yeah. Then I came home, um, back to Arizona and then Colorado got healthy, did a full reset there, you know, took a little more time off training and made sure I got the treatment I needed, mm-hmm. got back on track and, you know, started building back up and, um, was able to do a couple 70.3s in the fall. Really felt like I was coming into some incredible form, had some great training and came home after Santa Cruz 70.3 back in September 
And, you know, I kind of, I backed up quickly after my race, but I mean, it didn't seem like I was overreaching or doing anything crazy and mm-hmm. there was really no warning sign, but I just ended up, um, getting injured again, this time with a, with a stress fracture on the other side, um, in my, you know, sacral ala, they call it. So yeah, yeah, that was pretty, pretty unfortunate. Just kind of a, a tale of two injuries this year and something that I really haven't experienced before in my career at all. I've been very healthy and I can only think of one other small injury I had in 2011 where I had a bit of a soleus issue. Um, mm-hmm. but other than that, I've been really healthy. So it was kind of this crazy season and a bit of a wake up call for me about, you know, <laughs> taking, maybe taking better care of myself and, um, yeah, just figuring out maybe a little bit different strategy for the way that I train and, and the way I recover. Yeah. Well, plus just the reality of getting older and, you know, your body doesn't recover the same. And I know people sort of have to evolve their recovery strategy as they, as they age, because, you know, 35 isn't 25. And, uh, I, I just wonder if you're, um, if a doctor said perhaps with your crash, if that just caused your gait to be off enough, like you're compensating and then you're running a little different and you go train a bunch of miles and then over time, do they think that perhaps that's what happened, that that caused the, the stress fracture? We haven't a hundred percent ruled that out, but the, the truth of the matter is that we don't really think that they're related mostly just because, um, I was able to get, like I said, fully healthy. And actually the interesting thing was, I feel like in, if I'm perfectly honest, I mean, we always kind of carry these small niggles or tightnesses or whatever, you know, in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And and really I felt like maybe even the build into South Africa back in, in March, I was kind of experiencing some hip cradle tightness that actually went away over the summer when I did that initial reset. So Mm -hmm. I felt like I was actually healthier and stronger and maybe running a little bit more balanced even than I was earlier in the spring. So, you know, I think this is probably, you know, just from the reading that I've done and from talking to other athletes that have gone through it, it just sounds like it's one of those kind of fluke things where it's not a super common injury. Intra-athletes, it's more common, um, but it's basically just a repetitive stress thing. And you know, we're, we're definitely ticking all the boxes now. We're going back and taking a hard look at everything. Did I change anything, you know, with bike fit that might have influenced it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to see, you know, a specialist that's an endocrinologist just to make sure that we don't have any underlying bone abnormalities or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But most likely, and what we're kind of concluding um, at this stage is that it's just one of those things that, like I said, was a bit of a fluke injury. And unfortunately, your body you know, in a lot of cases doesn't give you a, a ton of warning signs about this. Um, I'm, I may have mentioned, you know, that talking to Jan in Kona this year about mm-hmm. his, you know, that he obviously came off of one of the most epic performances of all time in, yeah. in triathlon, at least at long course racing. And, you know, he was feeling, he was flying, he was feeling great. And, uh, he got off the plane on a layover and went for a six mile jog. And from running one Oh six to doing an easy 10 K jog, during a layover, he went from fully healthy and, and winning a world title to broken. And, yeah. uh, that was kind of the same story for me where I had a great race in Santa Cruz, came home, hooked into the training again. And from one day to the next, I was, you know, broken. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it's unfortunate because that, that scares me a little bit because I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, how do I prevent this in the future? And I think, um, in, in some ways it's really hard to know exactly how you do because, if your body's not telling you a lot of stuff, you know, and, and giving you these signs to look for, um, it just be kind of, you know, becomes a little bit more of a game of luck, I think. Um, yeah. but that said, you know, things like maybe increasing, uh, the amount of stretching that you're doing to take some of the pressure off those, those attachment points, maybe some more supplementation, simple things like vitamin D and calcium, bumping those up a little bit in the diet, right. um, things like that, that might, that might kind of stave off a future occurrence. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, yeah, we're trying to do what we can to really, make sure that we don't just yeah gloss over this for sure but at the same time it might just be one of those things and hopefully one of those things that just happens once in my career and I can put it behind me yeah I think the best quote I heard or actually I was I was talking to uh, Nate Cordham who's uh, Sarah Haskins husband who's also mm-hmm. like her coach and like manager and he, he does like a ton of behind the scenes stuff he's a really good guy and uh, <laughs> when I was uh, living in Colorado Springs and training with them a fair amount he was she was having some injury on at the time. This this thing with her shoes was causing a problem, and uh, he was like, "People think that pro triathletes and just pro athletes in general are the epitome of health. You know, they're so fit, they look so good. <laughs> but he's like, they don't know that 
it's you're on the brink of disaster constantly. He's like, you're training so hard that it's, you know, the, that uh, health and fitness are not necessarily, uh, they don't go together all the time. They, they are, it's often fitness is at the expense of health. So I think you're, uh, I think that's a pretty, pretty accurate statement. And I think, you know, it's uh, on one hand, I know, you know, some of the focus of your podcast is talking about striking this balance and, and whatever. And I think that's something that maybe a more average athlete can strive for. But the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is when you're pushing the boundaries of performance and you're really trying to get those top results, it's a game of extremes. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I tell that to people, like, I like to think I'm a more balanced person where I have some other things going on in my life and whatever. But at the end of the day, I mean, what we're doing is very extreme. And, you know, one, one thing that I, I'm not saying that, I don't want to get into that mindset of, I think sometimes with endurance athletes where it's almost, uh, injuries are sort of this thing that are like a badge of honor. I I don't Mm -hmm. really think that, you know, I want to go down that path too much, but I think they're the one silver lining. If I could say it would be that, you know, I was really, I was finding that line, you know, and I, I happened to make the mistake of crossing over and I take full responsibility for that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's, there is something kind of cool where I know now, like, okay, you know, I was really bumping up against that and I was actually, getting the most out of myself and um and i found the line and actually crossed over it so mm-hmm. uh there's no question i'm doing the hard work it's just about maybe doing a little bit smarter work now and right. uh making sure that i don't don't go over that line but yeah. no you're right it's absolutely the case um it's a line that we're always walking if you want to to be at the top level you've got to push the limit yeah and i think what people don't the average people don't realize is sort of the stress that can have because you're you're treating this as a business. You know, you've got to make money doing this. And when you have that much unpredictability and that much risk with injury, I mean, it can take a mental toll as well because, you know, your sponsors are supportive, but at some point, if your results suck or you 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 have one bad season, two bad seasons, three bad seasons, all of a sudden loyalty is like, ooh, it's it's tough to uh to keep going and um I mean, I've, I've always admired the way you've, you've approached it, which is as a real business. And you've always seemed to make sure that you've got, you know, everything lined up the right way. But I guess, can you sort of comment on that, that whole situation? No question. I think that for me, I, you know, I, the way I run my business is that I, I try to make it as symbiotic as possible. I mean, because I just have this innate sense of responsibility, I think, where, um, when I partner with people, a, I really want to believe in the product because, you can't talk about these things genuinely, authentically, if you don't actually use them and believe in them. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the starting point with all these things. And then on top of that, you know, the way I approach my relationships with my sponsors is to sort of say, look, it's obvious that I'm, you know, a selfish, self-involved triathlete that's trying to accomplish mm-hmm. my mission of winning these big races and making a living and all the other things that I'm doing that are my goals. But I also like to ask them, you know, very, for a concrete picture of what they're looking to accomplish and then you know how we can do those things together where they Mm -hmm. can obviously pay me and you know give me product and do whatever else they do so that i can get the massages so that i can travel to the races and be comfortable and you know just live day in and day out uh approaching this training and and racing the way i do Um, but also yeah like i said to to say what are your marketing strategies and goals and how can i uh, be a piece of that so Mm -hmm. it's definitely a for me it's a you know it's not a one-way street ever and that's just, like I said, something that I feel an innate responsibility where I want to know when I go to bed at night that I'm actually, you know, justifying this relationship and this money that they're spending on me. Um, but yeah, I feel, I definitely, you know, it, the biggest critic for sure is myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm aware, you know, and I think about these people and fortunately most of my sponsors, I don't feel like they're, you know, breathing down my neck, like you got to do this, you got to do right. this. I mean, they, they're supporting me because I, because of who I am in addition to the results that I achieve. But yeah, I think I've been fortunate in the sense that I've, I haven't really had to test my sponsors uh, too much in my career where, you know, I've had pretty much solid seasons all the way through. I think of myself as a very consistent athlete, um, especially when it comes to Ironman racing. I'm usually there nowadays. And this is really kind of the first season where I'm putting their hand to the fire a little bit and saying like, Hey, you know, what, <laughs> what do you think? Um, you know, do you, do you want to, continue this or is this, you know, too much, um, for you to, to wrap your head around. And, you know, for the most part, fortunately, my sponsors are extremely supportive and understand that, you know, the value that I add is not just the results that I achieve. Um, but, but other things that we do as well. 
So it is, it's really tough. It's really tough. You know, it's challenging to, uh, to, to be a professional athlete and have something that is so concrete and so black and white in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's other jobs maybe out there and I, I have not been part of that workforce, so I can't fully comment, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think there's other jobs where maybe there's some gray areas and you can kind of float through a bit and maybe, uh, the standards aren't quite as clear or maybe, yeah, just, uh, you know, you're not held accountable as much, but with triathlon racing, obviously the performance side is very black and white, very clear. And it's also one of the things that attracts me most of the sport, because in my opinion, usually there's a very linear relationship between the work that you put in, you know, and the results that you achieve. And you just get to see on that day, you know, how good am I really? And that, that honest side of it is something that really draws me in. So I was just about to say that it's like a, it's a very clear and honest transaction. You know, you put in this work, you get this much out for the most part. And, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, there's other, other factors for sure, but that to me that there's, this is one of the jobs that does present that more than other jobs potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what is the plan or do you, do you even have an idea in terms of what the first race will be? Or do you have like a, a window of, well, I'm going to give myself this many months to this many months. And, uh, what's, what's the idea? Well, right now, without question, the focus is on making sure that I'm hundred percent healthy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I'm sure you're aware of, you know, Sean Watkins, Heather Jackson, they live in Tucson as well. We had him over for dinner the other night and I was mm-hmm. talking to Heather because she actually had this injury as well. And she mm-hmm. was just saying to me, look, from the time that I actually stopped training, like, cause you know, the doctor says, okay, when did you first get the injury? And then of course, all of us would probably continue training for another week or at least that long, you know, right. um, after the injury occurred because we, A, didn't know and B, um, were believing that somehow we could get through it <laughs> yeah. uh, without resting. But, um, you know, she said eight weeks. And that was eight weeks of pretty much resting the whole time. I'm doing some tethered swimming right now, but that's only a couple times a week. And it's really, really low impact light on the body. I'm sitting on my couch a lot. So uh, when I heard her say that, it kind of, it was refreshing for me because I think I'm about at this stage, five weeks into like true, honest recovery from the last time that I tried to like ride and run and do all that other stuff that was really aggravating it. Mm -hmm. And um, I've got three more weeks to go probably before I can feel confident building back some kind of training. So for the rest of this season, it's a write-off. I'm not worried about it. On one hand, it was the worst timing possible because it was right before Hawaii. But on the other hand, we have all this time right now to kind of rest and reset and enter this normal off season period that I'd have anyway. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of kept telling myself that even if this extends out to 10 weeks or whatever it takes before, you know, the next scan that we get confirms that it's actually healed. Uh, we're just going to take that time right now and, and really make sure that we put this behind us because I've also heard the horror stories of guys going out and training way too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially the cycling, they don't realize that with this injury, you get on the bike and you ride your bike a lot because, okay, it's not impact, but it's still firing that glute muscle a ton and it's pulling on that attachment point. Yeah. And that, causing that joint there. is still so moving. The, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I'm really just trying to like, you know, be at peace with just totally resting for the next several weeks. But, um, back to your real question about racing. Um, I mean, the focus is still 100% on Hawaii. I, I believe that I can perform there. Watching the race this year, it kind of drove home for me that if you prepare really, really well for that race, and if you execute on the day, you have as good of a shot as anybody. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's other races out there that, for whatever reasons, maybe, I don't know, you know, a guy that, that is, seems to be head and shoulders above will be head and shoulders above. But with Hawaii, I think of this kind of a great equalizer where mm-hmm. uh, there's still a lot of opportunity out there if you really um, prepare properly and execute on the day. So, you know, I'm going to focus on that again. That means I'll have to do another Ironman to get there, um, which may be something like I've done in the past with the South Africa. I'll definitely choose a race that I think suits my skill set. I love the hard races. I mean, if you look at my history, racing Coeur d'Alene, St. George, when it was still an Ironman, uh, mm-hmm. Lake Placid, you know, these races that are typically more challenging. So I'll target something like that. And uh, yeah, and then look to get back to Kona with 100% focus on that next October. Excellent. That sounds sounds like a good plan. Um, I guess we can <laughs> we can switch gears, uh, if you don't mind, which we... Uh, no problem. We touched on some stuff uh, before about your little Airstream excuse me, Airstream experience 
And, you know, I, I don't think you would call yourself a minimalist, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been at your house before. You were kind enough to let me uh, stay there. I believe it was for uh, the Boulder Olympic distance race. Um, yeah, Boulder Peak, I think. Yes, back in the day. that was yeah. it. Um, but it seems like, you know, you've got uh, a balanced perspective in general. You know, obviously now you're forced to take some time off. And I guess part of the whole minimalism gig is just living with more intention, you could say, or wanting to um, be in control of your surroundings um, so they're enjoyable to you and they don't cause any stress. And I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you have at least like a toe or two dipped into that philosophy. I would say so. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, in the culture that we live in, you know, we're sold on consumerism and, and I represent these brands and I, and I fully believe that, you know, a big part of my job is to sell these products that are, um, you know, part of racing triathlon. Mm -hmm. Um, but that said, I think also that for Kelsey and I, you know, my wife and I, we've realized that, uh, the, sometimes the clutter and, and the ex, you know, the excess really, um, and the consumer mentality is not one that, that fully, you know, we subscribe to. I think that, um, when you really read about the science of, you know, like buying stuff that, mm -hmm. uh, it's just such a temporary fix really. Right. And I think as a culture, you know, sometimes that we, you look around, you see these depression rates rising, suicide rates rising. And, um, I think there's a lot of factors at play. I mean, I'm not a sociologist, so I don't want to, you know, pretend to know more than I do, but my, right. the feeling that I have is that maybe people, um, you know, that there's some of the real underlying quality and real interactions are lacking, you know, and, and mm -hmm. humans are social beings. I mean, they want to have those connections with people and we spend so much time on our phones, our computers, everything else that I think, I think some of that is lacking and missing now. And, um, and I, I think people are, you know, I hope sort of waking up to that a little bit and, and hand in hand with that, I think is also just the, you know, the, the over consumption, um, of products and whatever else it is. I mean, right. people, you know, they're looking for, like I said, that quick fix and, and it is, it's a great little feeling, but in the end you realize that probably that thing isn't going to make your life that much better. And right. what you really want is to have those, you know, meaningful interactions with other people and, and build those experiences that you can reflect on later. So yeah, we try to make that an emphasis for ourselves when we travel to races and, um, just day-to-day -day life too, where, you know, every multiple times a year, we kind of just look around at our house um, and just say, what, you know, what can we get rid of? Um, yeah. what, what would make us feel, uh, you know, to declutter and purge a little bit? And it yeah. always feels good every time we do it. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the the thing about phones and, you know, minimalism can extend to, to other areas. You know, when you're totally distracted constantly, you know, there, there's mental clutter too. It's not just the crap that's on your kitchen table it's you have all these apps, all these notifications, your phone dinging, buzzing, distracting you, and like you never have a moment alone to just be quiet and think or be bored. And uh, that's definitely, I think that's just as important as like the physical clutter that's that's around you. And also from the from the product standpoint, to me, if I know someone is um, at least in some way a minimalist, or they're they're otherwise vetting the stuff before it gets into their life, you know, they're, they're a little more discerning that to me makes their product recommendations more impactful. Cause I know this person is thinking about what they're doing and they're, they're not just mindlessly buying everything that looks shiny and makes a noise. It's like, Oh, if, if it's a friend or a celebrity or someone, someone that I follow or otherwise know about, and they, uh, I know they're thinking in a similar way to me when they say, Hey, I, I bought this thing and it's really added value to my life and it's really working, I will pay much more attention to those people. So I think for you or for athletes, if, if you're known as being that type of person um, and you're promoting product X, Y, or Z as a sponsor, it's like, well, they're, they're probably going to listen to you. You know, the average person is going to listen to you more. So hopefully, hopefully that's working well, in, yeah, in I mean, your I, favor. I would hope, yeah, I would, I would hope so too. Yeah, I mean, it's, I fully agree. And, and like I said, the starting point for my relationships with all my sponsors is to ask, you know, like I oftentimes ask Kelsey just, okay, if we're brainstorming some ideas about new products that or whatever companies that we want to partner with, 
you know, the starting point oftentimes is just to look around and say, what are we already using? You know, what mm-hmm. is something that's part of our life? And, and like you said, we've already done in a lot of the cases, hopefully the analysis to, to say, is this a value add? Is mm-hmm. this something that, you know, is making our lives quote unquote better? And, um, yeah, I, you know, I do think that, like I said before, if you, you actually use the stuff and you, and you've thought about it, I mean, it's, going to be something that you know you can actually speak about authentically and uh i don't know hopefully that you know resonates with other people yeah when you were the first uh pro triathlete that i knew about to have a bacon sponsor which definitely adds value so <laughs> good job absolutely <laughs> thank you yeah the, the tender belly crew is awesome man i met those guys down in in denver via actually interestingly my wine sponsor um <laughs> and you know they're just a great crew of people yeah um, and i you know I, I love what they're all about and uh you know they make a quality product i mean really best in class when it comes to that's well, awesome i think you gave experience. me some so, uh, of, you gave me some of the habanero yeah. bacon which was like i was like this is the shit i ate that stuff so yeah. fast it was awesome it's a real deal <laughs> Definitely, man. No, they're good, good guys. So check them out if you haven't heard of them. Shameless sponsor plug. Hey, go for it. <laughs> I'm all about it. Um, let's see. We were, you know, emailing before this and sent you a list of questions. One of them being, um, sort of, what are your top one to three things that you think either the triathlon industry or perhaps just the outdoor or endurance space, you know, what can they? do better to have a long and healthy existence and you know are there any issues right now that that you'd like to to talk about well i mean i think it's a great a really great question actually that i'm not sure has a great answer or an easy answer um or one that i have necessarily but Mm -hmm. i mean i definitely have ideas about it and um i think that well uh, feel free to uh, speculate and uh, talk shit at will so (laughs) please go ahead right right okay (laughs) I will speculate the hell out of this one. Um, <laughs> the, I think the economics in the general tri customer slash athlete has really evolved a lot over the past decade. Um, I can think back to, and maybe even slightly longer than that, but you know, you think about triathlon starting in what the late seventies, um, in, in a, a real sense and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just the roots of it compared to maybe where we are now, it's, you know, I think quite night and day and the average consumer, like I said, is, is just maybe a different person than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, so I, and I, so I think that that whole situation has evolved and, and what's interesting now, I think is that maybe we're revisiting those routes because I think overall mm-hmm. the bike industry, the triathlon industry has had a little bit of a pullback recently and it's maybe caused them to analyze, you know, a little bit more of where, people want to go with this. And Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any question that, you know, any good business or any good industry pays attention to what its customers want. I mean, that just is basic um, business, but I think that when it comes to triathlon, that community was always kind of a cornerstone of everything. And I think that maybe, and and probably still is, but I think putting the keeping or, or putting the focus back more on the community is, is absolutely, you know, key. Um, and keeping the events fun, because I think that mm-hmm. if I had to speculate some more, I would say that, I don't know, I mean, that triathlon has maybe moved away from some of that, that grassroots stuff where it was just like, hey, you know, like, let's go do this challenging thing and, and have fun with it. And it's just become more serious or something and, and maybe more competitive, which is great. I still think that you need the standard. I think that you need a professional field that is kind of making you know, it's validating the sport. It's sort of setting a bar. Um, but I think that overall, maybe it's gotten a little too serious at times. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I like this sort of movement that I've seen where people are setting up triathlons that maybe don't make perfect sense. Um, things that are just like, okay, we're going to go swim across this lake and then we're going to bike up that mountain and back. And then we're going to run around the lake that we swam in. And like, I don't care how far the distances are, but like, we're just going to do that. And it's a triathlon or it doesn't have to be even in the swim bike run, you know, format. It could be that, or even another event that you throw in some kayaking, whatever it is. And I think that's sort of, that's sort of the spirit to me where it's just like a challenging thing that incorporates, you know, you have to be multi uh, faceted in your, in your sporting, you know, skill set. And, um, I think that that's really attractive and could be kind of a, a future movement of, of the triathlon, you know, industry. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely got to keep the focus on keeping it fun. And, uh, and I told myself when I started racing and I started training in Montana, you know, the university of Montana tri club team up there that, you know, we just go do, we had fun and like, we would just, we'd go on these training trips and we would go run up the side of the mountain in Montana and it was covered in snow as part of our training. It wasn't like so structured and, you know, so like disciplined about everything. It was, you know, and I think that passion was really what made us perform at a high level too. And right. I think that in this moment of me being injured, I've actually, I've kind of taken a hard look at my life and in the sport of triathlon and said to myself, like, what, you know, what's missing and, and what do I need to bring back to maybe be, to kind of reignite that passion a little bit? Because in all honesty, I think that as you do this for a decade or more, as I have as a professional, um, you know, your definition of fun kind of evolves. And sometimes in moments, you know, you, you do, you get focused on the pressures that you feel from yourself and sponsors and whatever, and you lose focus on just your general excitement and passion for getting out there and training every day. And I think that this has been a good reset for me to just kind of say, okay, like, you know, what did I, what did I, how did I start in the sport and maybe how can I get back there a little bit? Yeah. It's like, what what were we doing? We're having fun. We're exercising a bunch. We're doing some weird adventures and, (laughs) you know, fucking stuff up and crashing or just whatever, you know, all the stuff messing up the nutrition. And it's, it's almost like those failures and, that that becomes the stories that are fun later. You know, it sucks at the time when you're miserable in some rainy, cold race. And but you know, two years later, you're having beers, and that's like the best thing you ever did. And uh, it's easy, one hundred percent, easy yeah. to lose sight of that. I totally agree, man. And 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 you know, the other thing too is, and I I've kind of been exploring this in my own mind as it relates to my career in racing. But you know, when you have these moments that are like really difficult and you know, you struggle and you suffer and whatever, those are the things that cause growth. I mean, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, most people, whether it's subconscious or conscious, they, they, they're aware of that. And I think you actually, as much as your knee jerk reaction might be to kind of push away from those things, ultimately you really want them because you know that the end result, um, once you move beyond it a little bit is a really positive one where mm-hmm. you grow as a human being, whether that's emotionally or physically or whatever. So you're actually, I think, you're searching for those experiences and you know, that's part of what triathlon is at its core to me is a, is a mechanism for growth um, for the human yeah. being. So um, yeah, just kind of maybe putting the emphasis back on that too, where yeah, people are looking for the, you know, I think they're really striving. I mean, I remember even a few years ago, I was reading an article somewhere in the news and they were talking about how New Yorkers are starting to like pay to go to work on farms during the weekends. You know, that's like their <laughs> getaway from the city because they want to get their hands in the dirt and like see something and experiencing something that is a little bit more real or raw or whatever. And, you know, going back to what we talked about with cell phones, it's like we've got this digital artificial world and it's great. It's got its benefits and advantages too. But yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, people still want to get out there and like run around, you know, on some trails and yeah, crash their mountain bike and whatever else. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think like, stories, like you I said. think, if you're scared going into it, like that's a good thing. I think we're trying to make everything too predictable. It's like, well, if I have, you know, all my equipment is 100%, you know, perfect, the $20,000 bike and I've got the power meter and this and that, like you're trying to take every element of potential, you know, surprise (laughs) out of it. Yeah. It's like, then, then it's not fun anymore. It's too predictable. And, uh, I think like if, if it's scared and you're not quite sure, like go for it, you should do it. I know with me, like when I started getting into, uh, jiu-jitsu and started like sparring and like it was terrifying it's, I still get scared I'm still nervous and sometimes like but then like after class if I you know I make it through and it's done I'm like sometimes I, I feel like a hero just for surviving but it's like it's I'm, it's it's a good exercise for myself every week to like I'm driving there I'm a little nervous and like okay like gotta think about what are my techniques I'm gonna work on and you know then you do it and then afterwards like it's so worth it but you've got to you've got to present yourself with the adversity and uh, just go for it. Yep. I mean, that's the thing. You got to shift your mindset away from avoiding adversity to fully embracing it. And, you know, knowing that it's ultimately going to make you stronger and better at probably everything in your life. And I think most high achievers, you know, they kind of, like I said, again, whether it's conscious or subconscious, they are doing that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the key 
to success ultimately and yeah. to growth and enjoyment of life probably. Yeah. I know for me, like I had to unlearn some stuff cause I'm very much a planner. And I think with, with triathlon, I was, I was trying to overdo it with perfecting everything ahead of time. And like that in itself was like keeping me from doing it well. It's like, I was almost in my mind trying to over-prepare, but then the execution, like I wasn't focusing enough on actually doing it. Um, so maybe this show is like a cathartic, like I need to get this stuff out. Like I screwed it up. I was so dumb. Like, don't do what I did, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, that brings up a whole nother, you know, point, which is that people have to live their own mistakes, right? I mean, they yeah. can listen to our podcast and, and you can tell them what to do and what not to do. But at the end of the day, they kind of go to go out there and experience it for themselves. And that's the beauty of it is make their own mistakes and learn from them. But no, you're right. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny thing that we do where we, yeah, we think we want the easy way or something, but, uh, you, you know, at the end of the day, I think that that ends up being a more hollow experience if you, you know, if you're always kind of going the easy and safe route. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, is there anything else, uh, <laughs> you need to get out? Not really, man. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, just to anyone out there that's listening and thanks for, for listening and, um, Hopefully we can watch this sport that we all love in our own ways, find its path forward and, you know, continue to, to be something that is a positive, you know, that's a, a place of, of growth for people and, and fun. I mean, there's plenty of moments where, and I'm not going to dive too deep into, um, you know, what your religious beliefs may or may not be, but I mean, oftentimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about these little things that are on my mind that, that mm-hmm. I think are such a big deal. And then I'm like, wait a minute, we're literally just floating in space. And, <laughs> you know, like we're probably going to, our entire universe is going to get sucked into a black hole in a few billion years. So like, yeah, this thing that you're thinking about that you're so worried about probably isn't that important. So let's just wake up each day and try to have fun with life. Damn, mic drop. That's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> where, do, where do we find you on the uh, interwebs, uh, your social media? What are your, all your hashtags and handles? Yeah, so I use Instagram a lot. That's just B Hoffman Racing, all one word, obviously. Um, and then we've got a website, BenHoffmanRacing.com. And uh, Ben Hoffman Racing is on Facebook. And we do some Twitter as well, B Hoffman Racing there. And uh, as far as Everything else goes, yeah, I mean, there's videos that pop up from time to time that I do with my sponsors, but um, those are probably the best places to find me. Perfect. Well, we will stay tuned. We will look forward to, at some point in 2019, you getting back out there, doing your validation Ironman, and then, of course, crushing it at, uh, at Kona. So the best of luck from myself and all three of our listeners. It's, uh, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, I'll see if I can bring the title back on the U.S. It's about time for, for that to happen. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.